Hi, and welcome back to the European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Carlos, managing partner at Seedcamp, the European seed fund launched in 2007 that helps European entrepreneurs to compete on a global scale. With investments in over 460 companies, including publicly listed Romanian-funded UiPath, Wise, and Unicorns, Revolut, WeFox, and Plio. Carlos is a published author, fellow podcaster, and made it onto Forbes Midas list as one of the most influential VCs in Europe in 2018, 19, 20, and 21. You are in for a treat. If you enjoy our content, do support us by hitting the follow button, giving us a review and following the European VC on LinkedIn. Carlos, welcome to the European VC podcast. It is a pleasure to have you here after bumping into you in so many, I, I, I lost count, tech conferences and events and whatnot across Europe. How are you today? Good, good. Really excited about this, guys. So, Carlos, I'm, uh, I'm playing a bit with our script today because I want to start with something that you actually said before we opened up the recording that you had thought about. And that question is, you know, we've had Reshma in the podcast not that long ago. So why the hell should GPs and LPs stay tuned to listen to you? Nice. Well, obviously, my colleague Reshma is a must-listen. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, stop now, <laughs> throw that one, come back. You'll be that much more prepared. <laughs> and so I was thinking, like, what would be a fun thing to share? And it would be the funniest rejections we've had to date over the course of 15 years fundraising from LPs and GPs. And maybe we can explore what those implications were when people were rejecting <laughs> us on those reasons. The top three. I really like that topic. Let's just go right in. Give us the third one. Boom. All right. Well, first of all, let's just a recap. If you haven't watched Reshma's episode, we'll do a little quick recap of what we do. So we invest in pre-seed and seed. We have 100 investments per fund. We deploy that over three years. We've made about 400 plus investments to date. Some of the investments we've made today that you might know are like Revolut, UiPath, Wise. The thing with any kind of portfolio of this size is that you're going to have a disproportionate number of companies that don't make it relative to the one or two or three that make it. So over the course of the 15 years that we've been operating, we now have you know five funds that we've raised. And just so that you can sort of understand how the funds grew, uh, the first one was 2.5 million, the second one was 5 million, third one was 20 million, fourth one was 60 million, and the current one's 78 million. So they've been, you know, to some extent, they've been incremental. If you look at that, they sound incremental by today's standards, but you have to rewind the clock. And remember that when we were raising for our third fund, 20 million, and our previous one was a 5 million fund, people saw that as a 4x increase in fund size. I mean, it was incomprehensible. It was like, wow. You know, when we raised our 5 million fund, it was a 2x increase from our previous fund. So I think sometimes it's relative, right? One of the things that I think you guys mentioned you wanted to chat about was the sort of what the implications are of modern day fund sizes and sort of is that growing too fast and whatever. We can have a debate about that. But what's funny is if we run the clock, you know, by many standards, one would say that Seedcamp going for a four times larger fund when we went from a 5 million fund to 20 million fund was incomprehensible. That was one of the first rejections that we got was this idea that our model that had been working at 5 million would break at 20 million. And, uh, and yeah, and, and you know, like a lot of things had to change, that's for sure. But a lot of things got better. It's no surprise that Fund 3 is actually one of our best performing funds to date. Obviously, it's older, so you can see the traction. Yeah. Today, people would say, now, nah, but a 5 million, that's the proof of concept fund. So in that sense, obviously, it's going to be much smaller than what the real strategy should be, be folded out to be at, right? But it didn't feel like that 
back in the days when you did the 5 million euro fund or? No, I didn't. But also you have to, you know, we, we forget the power of yep. inflation. You yep. know, just to give you an idea, the typical raise for pre-seed back in those days was like 100 to 150K. And now they're like about a million to a million five, right? And so you're looking at 10X, like just so you can mentally process that today. It's kind of like we had a 50 million fund and went to a 200 million fund. Yeah. That's kind yeah. of how it probably would feel like. Yeah, okay. You, you could argue at the time that that fund was good enough for what we were trying to do. And, and that, I think, was the reason why it felt that way, was that to potential LPs, it felt like, wow, this is like a really different deployment strategy. But, you know, there's a lot of things that have changed and a lot of things that are constantly changing. I think one of the beauties about our industry is that it's a constant change. And I think that's why I love what you guys are doing as the new wave of fund of funds is because this industry requires change all over the place. You know, we have startups that are changing at the speed of innovation. Funds are trying to change, <laughs> but the last limiter is the LPs. And that's why that's where you guys come in. So that's the first reason. I think this is something that keeps puzzling me a bit, that the Seedcamp strategy of having a very large portfolio, 100 investments, is still, even though I, I think it, it's, very, it's best practice, really, when you do that early stage investment, it's still not a model that most VCs run in Europe. And back in the days, you were absolute pioneers of doing something where all LPs said you're crazy and everyone listening in should listen to our episode, both with, with uh, Tom and Reshma, because they talk about that. But I'm curious, what's the status now? Of course, you've had impeccable return. So that, of course, helps. But on the concept, why do you think that that approach is not yet really, you know, being picked up by that many firms in the rest of Europe? It's a good question segue to the second rejection that we got a lot because it was on the basis of that, which was, you know, your portfolio is too big relative to what our existing winners demonstrate as an LP, talking like an LP, right? And so your version of the question is, you know, why do not more people do this? I think it goes both ways. First of all, when you're fundraising as a fund and you're going out to talk to LPs and if they think that the model doesn't work, then you're going to adapt it to whatever model they think is going to work so you can raise the money. When you ask me that question, I can't tell. Is it because the supply of capital is forcing a certain pattern of LP, GP relationship, or is it because the model is just hard? On that first point, I don't know, but I have a suspicion that if you look at the cross-section of all the LPs out there, probably only 50% of them would totally buy into this model. 50% yeah. of them would be quite skeptical. Because now you're dividing them into two groups. Could you just, because I have a thesis on the characteristics of those LPs, meaning that you can definitely bundle them in those two groups on other characteristics as well. Meaning that a sophisticated venture investor would be more leaning towards your model. Whereas if you're the least bit not knowledgeable of venture, you would very quickly say, no, no, you can't manage that many. It's too many bets on goal or rather it's too many wild shots. <laughs> That's how they would put it. They would say, you don't know what you're doing because you're just hoping to you know, spray and pray strategy, all those arguments. And that I really find is, well, the people that would say that is people that don't understand venture, especially when they then look at the managers that they see managing well, well they tend to also put private equity in that group. <laughs> That's exactly it. But the, there's a little bit even more detail there. So first of all, the data that shows that the model works is only a relatively recent thing. I think that the first people that pioneered the data sample that showed this was the AngelList team. And mm -hmm. of course, they have a very big sample size. Yeah. Now, since then, there's been like two or three other studies that show like the size of the portfolio and the likelihood of a return. And it's the indexing model, right? Like how do you take a large population, uh, find outliers within that population, and then amplify those outliers? And there's a whole statistical discussion around that, like finding outliers within a large population. Does that population have outliers? And then are you the one that capitalizes on those outliers? But the point is, there is a correlation between finding those outliers relative to the mortality rate of the sample size you're taking. So if you're looking at a sample size like Precy, where there's a high mortality rate, you need to have a higher proportion of companies you're looking at to find those outliers. Whereas if you're at the Series C stage, because there's a smaller pool, the mortality almost zero, 
you then can have like a more targeted approach, right? So that's like the sort of statistical stuff. And yes, you're right. Like some LPs aren't familiar with that because they might've seen it, but that's easy to dismiss when you look at some of the best funds in the world have 30 years of operating on the more traditional sense. But again, the more traditional sense is a little bit later stage, right? So all the data sets, almost all of them. And the reason why SeedCamp started was because we needed to go earlier. And if you look at most of the old data sets, they're all data sets for funds that were already investing in somewhat profitable companies or companies with already some level of traction. So that's why our model is basically the one that seems to work for companies that have nothing. And so that's why it's adapted for that stage. Question to the model on that front, which is there you are sitting in your home office in London. Population is huge, right? Uh, how do you make the model work? This brings me to the second half of that question I think Andreas was alluding to is there's an operational load with a large portfolio, right? And that's an administrative one. But we're living in a world with unprecedented technology change, right? So there's no reason why you can't figure out a way of doing that. You know, I've spoken to a lot of my friends that are doing similar things. And, you know, one of the ones I admire the most is Alexis over at Kima Ventures. And, you know, he's built an amazing tech stack to help with even little things like reporting. We're living in a world where tech enables scale for everything. And that's the same thing applies to what we do, right? And when you look at some of the things that we've learned over the years is that if you can focus on the people and sort of strip away everything else administrative and, and delegate that to technology, you can scale. There's this interesting debate around like the best thing an investor can do is stay out of the way. Right? We actually had a really cool episode with John from uh, Ica. He actually ended the episode saying that you can take a, a company from 100 to zero if you act badly. And if you're a great investor, you might be able to take it to 101, 102, maybe 103, right? But, but the magnitude of your impact is huge, right? How do you think about that in your model? You know, we see many of these uh, very early stage investors coming up with these like super structured programs where they have like, you know, a masterclass on topic A and experts and mentors and whatnot. And I'm, to be honest, a bit skeptical the value of that, right? Because oftentimes what I think is like a founder just needs help. Dude, I need to hire a marketing person. Like, help me. Like, I, I don't need a masterclass on growth marketing, right? I need help finding the person, right? So how do you guys think about that given the size of your portfolio? Yeah, so it's a good question. And I think one that suffers from generalities, unfortunately. You know, you can argue this from multiple directions. You can argue it from a cynical point of view and be like, oh, you know, all this stuff, just get out of the way, whatever. But the reality is just like there are different levels of quality for these kinds of initiatives, there's also different levels of understanding and maturity with founders. And so different people need different things. When you guys are backing a GP, you're kind of calibrating, is there a universe of founders that are going to be attracted to this GP and what they offer? For example, I am incredibly jealous of some of the great speakers that Index Ventures and the guys over at YC can muster up from their portfolio. They have some amazing, uh, inspiring people. And honestly, sometimes you just listen to one of those chats that have nothing to do with like your marketing strategy or anything else. All you walk away is inspired. That's it. And you don't have the time when you're battling in the trenches by yourself as a GP or as a founder. It's just being inspired, frankly. And so I think it's, it's hard to sort of pigeonhole these initiatives. Yes, okay, some of them are very practical, functional, right? But then you, you look at which way they're applied. Like I've seen some that are applied to a sector that's hard to get into or where there's only one or two or three buyers and you really need to understand those buyers, like take aeronautical engineering. You know, if you're selling to Airbus or Boeing, man, you really kind of need to know how to sell to those guys. And there's platforms that are designed just for that, you know. And so I, I tend to be probably a little less cynical about this because I think that there's a product and customer for everyone and the quality for that matters. And of course, when you're player number 10 in a saturated market with the same offering, okay, that's when it starts feeling like the cynical feeling. But there's almost always one or two players that satisfy every need for every kind of demand. 
that was your second decline, or <laughs> what we call it. Um, yes. Did you make it to, to go through all points on that? Because uh, Dave and I, uh, we jumped in and asked you a bunch of questions too. The one, it was on the fact that LP said, ah, that's a pretty weird model you're doing there. <laughs> yes. Well, I got two more if you want to hear them. Yes, please. Nice. Well, the next one is, why don't you just invest in all the winners? Yeah, why don't you? <laughs> why waste your money on these other ones? And I'm like, it's not how it works, man. Um, <laughs> well, probably most will know that we're talking to a legend here. So that also means that a legend gets asked this question. That also is obviously an expression of the fact that even the legends race from the less legends. <laughs> uh, and that's just uh, <laughs> that's something we're all forced to. But Carlos, how does a legend then respond to that question? Because I, I guess you don't say to the big-ass <laughs> family office guy, yeah, well, why don't I? I'm such an idiot. You're completely right. <laughs> I don't think you, you, you just laugh him off. I'm sure you have a good answer to it. Ah, man, I channel my best Andreas and David, and I think, what would those guys say? What would those guys say? So you haven't been very successful, I guess, <laughs> if you're doing that. <laughs> Everybody who listens to this podcast probably already knows what you guys would say. It would get it, yeah. Now, so our answer, it would become a very circular argument, right? Because we would say, well, we don't pick the best. We pick the best. We then pick the best. <laughs> and I think if you then refer to us who say that and we say that we pick you, then I think it's going to be a self-serving argument. And that's it, right? That, that's actually it. So this is, <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that I see a lot of kinship here because because it is effectively what we answer. But it was a very interesting conversation because to some extent, it's a very similar branch to the whole, why don't you just invest in a smaller portfolio size, right? It's, it's sort of a derivative of that question. But I think that the flip side from this, rather than just portfolio size, it was, if you already know what success looks like, why don't you just pick that? And I think the fundamental reason is because success doesn't manifest the moment you're investing. The, the sort of elements of success can manifest a year later, two years later. So you're looking at the DNA of success when we invest. We're not looking at the manifestation of success. I don't know if you are using this uh, uh, <laughs> to then take you to the part about Seedcamp doing follow-on investments. But that's, of course, you know, the way that you you correct or, or you, you really fix for the problem that you need to go wide in the beginning and then you double down later on. And that is something that you have built up quite a bit in the Seedcamp strategy. So I'd maybe love to hear your take on that. And I'm guessing that's part of your answer to the LP. Yeah, to some extent, that's been the one major uh, evolution from, let's say, fund two to fund five for us, right? So fund two had no follow-on capacity. When you start seeing successes, there's no reason why you wouldn't want to back them if you had the capital. So you could argue that any one given fund is actually two sets of IRRs, the initial IRR and then the sort of follow-on IRR. Of course, raising those and it gets complicated. So you know, having one and doing it that way makes sense. But ultimately, the bulk of the capital in terms of volume in terms of starting aggregate capital will go to the follow-on, but the aggregate volume of will go to the initial. So you'll have 100 bets, 120 bets in initial, but then the follow-on will be something like 30 or 40 over the period of, of the next four or five years. So you have this sort of bell curve of like the two or three that generate the most returns and then where the capital is deployed. So sometimes you don't always know which one are going to be the ones that are going to be the winners when you're deploying the pro ratas. So sometimes you can go over in your allocation for some that Maybe they return 2x, 3x, 4x, but aren't necessarily winners. So everything works in a bell curve in, in our model. So there isn't, you can't just say this one. <laughs> Where do you stand on uh, the topic of opportunity funds, Carlos? And I'm, I'm asking this because, you know, there's some people love them. Some people hate them. You said that in, in the early days you didn't have, uh, you know, a follow-on strategy per se. 
did you think about raising an opportunity fund just to seize that opportunity? Was the timing not right or is it because you think opportunity funds are stupid because they misalign incentives, X, Y, Z? If you haven't noticed the pattern in, in how I answer questions is that there's a lot of assumptions here about what the word opportunity fund means and therefore that's why there's a lot of stigma around it. So let's look at the different variants of opportunity. First of all, you could argue that CCAMP within our current fund, we have an opportunity fund. You could argue that. You could say this follow-on IRR pool is our opportunity fund and our initial is the main core fund. You could argue that. And so then what's the distinction between that structure and what people usually refer to as opportunity? Pretend that they were separate funds, right? The main difference there is that a traditional opportunity fund looks outward of the portfolio for opportunities. That's where the misalignment comes in, where instead of looking within your portfolio, you're looking to hunt outside. So now you have that investment committee has to make really tricky decisions about allocation of capital to the core investments versus external investments even to the point of potentially prejudicing the core investments. And that's the key assumption with a governance point of view with an opportunity fund. Then there's, of course, like alignment of team and, and use. And so I think when you look at the opportunity fund, and this is one of those interesting things that you guys will be doing as LPs, is unpacking what that means. What's that mean from a governance point of view, from a deployment point of view, from a decision-making point of view? Is the core team involved or not? What are the core opportunities um, that are going to be invested in? What is the decision process? So I don't have anything against opportunity funds. It's just that the term generally refers to the sort of stereotypical one, which is you're going to staple this thing that's bigger to the initial thing and then just going to go and hunt and maximize output on that capital to get the best IR you can. That's not necessarily the only configuration for opportunity funds. We didn't really dive into that part. And I think that that's incredibly interesting to hear from someone at your level. What processes and criteria, governance, structures as well, do you have for ensuring that when you double down, you double down on the right one? Meaning... Some operate with the principle, we don't lead the follow-on. We only do the follow-on ticket if there's a large tier one VC coming in, something like that, and they don't set the price. I am always on the side where I say, if you are to put more money into the company that you already know everything about, I want you to be there before everyone else. And I want you to use the fact that you know more to get a better price because you're betting before everyone else would be willing to. And then I trust you to do that well. So I don't need someone else to come in and then validate that because then I wouldn't have talked to you. I would have talked to the other firm and back them, right? So I'm curious to hear your take on how you ensure that you make the right follow-on investment decisions. My answer is going to disappoint you. <laughs> People like to hear systematic things because it gives confidence that there's like some sort of way of magically doubling down on just the right things. Now, that doesn't mean that you can just go crazy. I mean, I think anybody who's in this industry who's going to have a career for a long term, you need to show some level of restraint. And I think that's a key word. I think you need to be flexible with a measure of restraint. I think that's the only rational strategy, a very rigid strategy with zero restraint or zero flexibility rather prevents you from necessarily catching some of the companies that can manifest later. In practice, it looks like 90% of the time you behave one way, 10% of the time you behave another. You know, there are times when you fundamentally think that the circumstances are very unique and you're helping build a bridge for a company versus when it isn't. And I think there's two things you can't violate, right? One of them is you can't violate the trust with the founding team, right? Be very transparent about what's going on and what you can and can't do and the reasons why. They may not like it, but you have to. And I think that the other thing is that you need to be conscious that you need to have the support of your entire partnership because otherwise it can feel very much like you're rescuing your thing or somebody else's thing just for some sort of reason that some funds have, you know? And so I think those are the two key things that you need to keep in mind. When you're saying the support of the whole partnership, that's maybe a softer way to say that needs a unanimous decision from the partnership. Do you think the same way about initial tickets then? Because sometimes, you know, funds change. They say first ticket, 
that needs to not be unanimous because we need to go for the outliers and you don't find the outliers by having everyone agree. But then when you need to put more capital in and the first person who put in the check has now developed a relationship and blah, 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 blah. It's much larger tickets. We have fewer of them, all that stuff. For that reason, we now need to have a unanimous decision. How do you think about that insight? Well, this brings me to the number four reason for the funniest rejections to date. And it's, uh, it usually comes down to somebody taking a view on who led the deal. And so it's like an LP asking a GP that has multiple GPs. It's like, who's the one that led this deal? You know, are they still in the team? Did they leave? You know, or, or like, what are they doing? Are they unmotivated? You know, the sort of judgment calls around individuals within a team. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I say it's relevant to what you just asked me is because I think you have to, as a fund, have to make a decision. It's just a collection of individual egos, in which case everyone's trying to cover their ass, both for initial investments and follow-ons. Or is this a collection of people working together as a team where the egos are reduced to the point where they're functional, but not necessarily disruptive? Everyone has an ego, so it's unrealistic to get rid of them. But do you avoid the situations where you're trying to preserve success for the sake of one person's ego? And if everyone's bought into that company's success or not, for the follow-on, then you more likely will help it better because the colleague who has the one connection you need is bought into making that connection. They don't feel forced into it. And so that's the key reason why it has to be unanimous is probably not the right word because that would imply, well, I guess it, you can end up in a unanimous situation. You just don't want it to be a conflicted one. You want it to be one where everyone's equally supportive. And if everyone's equally supportive, then the founder has the best outcome. So if I read between the lines and correct me if I'm wrong, Carlos, what you're saying there is that, is that it, everyone being on board and it being unanimous is definitely not the same thing, right? Because it's very different. If the three of us, we can have a conversation and, and I can say, guys, I, there's something about this one. I have a feeling like it's really excited about it. I'm having a really hard time getting you guys on board. And, and you guys coming to a point where you say, you think it's high risk? David, let's go for it. <laughs> right? So that's one, one way. Another thing is, is everyone being unanimous. And that's what you're talking about exactly. Yeah. So let me break it out into more detail. So every organization at a certain scale, funds or otherwise, end up in some level of minor politics. You know, whether you want to use another term or not, doesn't really matter. But any kind of societal structure involving humans ends up with some level of politics. So what could that look like? It could look like that a seemingly unanimous decision is actually one person leveraging the sort of the, this for that yeah, to then yeah. get that paid yeah. off later in a different support, you know, and that can happen. And it happens. I've seen it happen in previous, you know, funds in, that I've worked with and it can happen, right? Yeah. And so the tricky thing here is what really benefits the founding team is when you have four, five, six, seven, whatever big the partnership is, people who are like, okay, this company has some challenges. I already shared my voice on what those challenges are and what I think about the things that they need to do. But I am now committed individually and collectively in helping this company work, not because I'm just trying to do somebody else a favor. They both come out with a unanimous outcome, but the genesis of them are very different. Yeah. So I just wanted to reel back into the previous topic, just to extract some insights for our listeners who are emerging GPs, you know, thinking about follow-on vehicles, opportunity, whatever we want to frame it like, right? And I'm asking this because many of the GPs that we're talking with and maybe even investing in, you know, it is a topic they think about, right? Should I raise a, some kind of vehicle? Should I, you know, how should I think about it? What would be your top tips for these guys and girls out there? Like best practices, things to think about, or just kind of very concrete, objective things? I, I don't know if you intentionally meant it this way, but it, it's kind of a funny one because when you're saying new GPs, I don't know many GPs that are also raising an opportunity fund. It usually is, I think, part of the, the reason why you guys are so successful is because it's hard enough raising one, never mind one plus an opportunity fund at the same time. So maybe what you're saying is 
for the first time, you're raising an opportunity fund, assuming that you already have your core fund. Otherwise, focus on one thing, right? Let me add some color to it just by saying the fact that you're not raising for it doesn't mean you're not thinking if you should be raising for it or how to deal with the problem, yeah. which is effectively pro rata uh, rights, follow-on rounds, et cetera, et cetera, right? You know that better than I do. So maybe, maybe that paints a better picture. Fair, yeah, fair. And, and maybe add in that David is also saying vehicles, so he's not saying necessarily funds, but it could also be SPVs to double SPVs, down on individual yeah. companies. Yeah, and, and actually that's where I was going to head to, which was that, you know, we did it that way as well. Whenever you're going to create a fund, right, the fund, if you look at the legal documents, right, it is a proper thing. It's a living thing with uh, governance and, and decision-making criteria, investment committees, jurisdictions, you know, fees. And so you kind of want to know what your model is going to be before you commit to that level of living being being created. To your question, people will have different circumstances, right? It could, it could very well be that a lot of the follow-ons that people are seeing are in, moving quickly. They're mostly US-based. You can go about it through AngelList. You can go about it through Volvan or any other sort of SPV maker. And so there's a lot of different strategies there. And I think if you optimize too soon for like a specific rigid structure that you've seen work for others, you might actually close yourself off from innovation. So I'm not going to say like, this is the right structure. I'm going to say like the way we did it was we iterated until we figured out what we needed as a, as a trade-off between speed of capital and structured available capital. I want to get back to the other one then, your fourth one, where you, we were just talking about how to basically, if you want to make decisions that are unanimous or where people are in agreement and so on, you, you then say, okay, you very quickly get into firm politics and for sure you do. One important element to ensure good dynamics in a partnership is, of course, the incentive design. Could you talk a bit about how you think around carry and how that should be distributed in the team? With most things in, in this, sometimes when you look at how other people have done it, it works really well. And then when you try to apply it, it fails. And, and you have to look at the context, right? And anybody who's in this industry long enough has read that book, E-Boys, Benchmark. And you read it and you're like, yeah, man, I'm going to start a fund and I'm going to split it equally with all my friends and it's going to be great. But, you know, you didn't start a fund like that with all these successful people who have the same amount of money at the same time you started it. Is that the right model? You know, if you're hiring younger people who are just leaving college and probably have still loans to pay, is that the right model? You know, like, how does that help them if they have a GP commit, right? So I think that there is no right answer here. That's the problem is that the issues have all surfaced whenever you try to force somebody else's model onto yours. And so you have to look at the context, right? So... First of all, is everybody at the same stage of life? Is everybody have the same level of wealth? If they don't, then you need to have a conversation about that because what one person might perceive that somebody in the partnership is so rich they don't give a shit, it might actually be a thing that you need to overcome before you even start talking about carry distributions. Because another thing is, as you guys know, GP commit is somewhat proportional sometimes to that politics, that influence and that within the fund. So how do you correlate GP commit to carry distribution and influence and decision-making and all those things? There is no right answer, unfortunately. There is no right answer. How we've done it, which I can share, is more that, you know, when Rush and I started, we were equals. We are same age. We kind of went to the same schools and learned a little bit on the job before we became into venture. She was at Vodafone and 3i and I was at Dowdy Hansen and I was at the New York Stock Exchange Tech Group. Um, beforehand. And, you know, we brought those experiences together. And the reason why I'm giving you a little of those snippets is because we were kind of at the same peer level and career level, meaning we had about the same level of, of sort of savings and, and sort of progress in our career, which meant that it was easy to sort of go 50-50 on many things, right? When we hired our now partners, Tom and Sia, you know, Sia was one of our interns. And so if you look at that sort of trajectory, it's a very different trajectory with different considerations. And you might say, well, why don't we hire another third partner that was kind of at our stage or maturity. And we tried. 
it's not like when you go out to the market to meet somebody to join your partnership, you immediately find what exactly you're looking for, right? And so when we were looking for a third partner, because a lot of our LPs were saying, hey, you should have a third partner, we went and we looked at who was available, who had just sold a company, who is, you know, wanted to go into venture. And a lot of them were a lot more successful than we were individually. This was like around fund two, fund three. Resma and I still had no successes to date, and it was still very a fledgling sort of venture model. And it became very difficult. Every single time we had a conversation with somebody who was like a successful founder who had made money, you could tell that their lifestyle was very different and their motivations were very different. And the way they spent their personal time was very different than the way that we were still trying to make things go with our model, which is already somewhat work intensive. And so it meant that we chose not to go down that path. And so therefore the carry and all those things were different because of that. And so, yes, we have a partnership uh, right now with Tom and Sia and it's an equal partnership, but that's been an evolution. And I think people need to think about the state of where people are when you meet them and and you just need to find what's fair. And then from there you build. And is it always going to be easy? No. And are you always going to have a little bit of jealousy when you read a book like E-Boys? Sure. But hey, we aren't dealt all the same cards. Carlos, you just shared a snippet of your story. And I think that our audience also, and I'm asking your personal question here, so I'm taking my time and I'm also looking at your face to adjust. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I'd love to hear that because you've really done, you know, what many dream about in venture, meaning building a firm quite early in your career, hustling to make everything work, as you said, work intensive, everything. And now the model has proven out. And I think that there's pretty many that are looking at Seatcam and saying, ah, Reshma and uh, Carlos must be doing pretty well. I'd love to ask you, how has your life changed? How has your views on being in venture as an individual changed with the success that you've now created? First of all, success is, is relative. When you're running a small fund, it's very different than if you're like a large fund and you have equivalent multiples. I've realized that when you look at some of the AUM of some of our bigger funds, I'm like, what the <laughs> hell are we doing in these preceding seasons? <laughs> so I think if you think, Andreas, that I'm you know living a lifestyle that is different than most, you know, no, it's not the case, right? But putting aside sort of anything like that, because I don't think that was the spirit of your question, I think one of the things that all these difficulties getting to where we are today has taught Reshma and I is that having an ego beyond what is sort of the minimum level that you need to just to, to be an assertive human being in society can kill you. And what that means is you need to have a certain level of respect and humility around what everyone else is doing around you and a constant desire to learn to sort of stay ahead. And so in that sense, my life hasn't changed that much because I realized that any kind of recognition that you guys, you know, being very kind and sharing, hey, Carlos, you, you know, the success you and Reshma have is a temporary fleeting thing. Like the model that we have that we're talking about in this podcast, if we were having this podcast in 10 years, it probably won't look the same. So my job hasn't changed. My job is to make sure that I'm constantly changing the model to suit the needs of the current climate. And that's the thing. It's like a constant, that, that silly expression that only the paranoid thrive, right? And so if you're living constantly paranoid, it doesn't really matter what level of success you've had because you're still in the state of paranoia. And of course, like the word paranoia makes it sound like really anxiety producing. So I lose it down by 50%, but that's kind of the sort of place you need to be. You know, every day, every year we wake up and we're constantly reevaluating that. So we just had our, our leadership summit last week with my colleagues and we're thinking, okay, well, what are we going to do different this year? And that's the thing that we need to do every year. It's like, what are we going to do this different this year? And the moment we stop doing that, is the moment when the, the sort of the silly version of your question really comes into play, right? Is when the complacency kicks in. And I think that that's the, the hope is that, you know, life carries on. At some point, you guys and I and everyone listening to this will retire, right? You know, that's just life. But my hope is that if Seedcamp continues as an institution and the likes of all the names that we know and love, it would be that that culture remains. And so I think my biggest investment in time between now and then is making sure that culture is established and, and retained, is that the only easy day was yesterday and that, you know, we're possibly have to be evolving every single week and every single year. 
Carlos, would you agree with the statement that it is easier to create something new to maintain than to maintain something current? And whether you agree or not, I'd love to ask you, again, a very personal but business-related question, which is, what keeps you up at night? I think every GP will go through different levels of evolution. And if I use myself as a model, it usually starts off with not necessarily feeling confident about what you're doing, but being very open to meeting a lot of new people and building new relationships. There's always this trade-off between the level of expertise that you have on any one subject or matter and the volume of relationships you can maintain or build. And so what keeps me up at night is that balance. You know, I, I feel like last year there was an explosion of events that we all went to, and I feel like I still missed some. And I didn't see some people. And, and who have not met, who have not had coffee with. Who have, and so it keeps me up at night because I realize so much of our business is about relationships. And so it's like, you know, that one meeting I didn't take with a founder or that meeting I did take with a friend in the industry who we could have worked together. And so that, that's what keeps me up at night. But to your previous question, what's harder, building something new or, or keeping something old? We, everyone knows that keeping something old alive is fucking hard. And so that's why you have to constantly be chiseling away the old. You need to constantly keeping it new. This is why, like, you look at, as I loved some of the Japanese gardens, because it's like some of them can be old, but every day somebody's got to rake them, right? And so the raking and the maintenance is what keeps them new, but the gardens themselves can be old. Andres and I were having a very uh, informal chat yesterday about, you know, the profiles of people in venture. And, like, we personally love, you know, GPs that have a super entrepreneurial mindset, right? And just, we just feel attracted to them because we have similarities, right? And obviously we love people who are like us. But this profile is, is great and we love it, blah, blah, but we're terrible. Like, and I'm speaking for myself here. I'm a fucking awful manager. I, I'm a terrible manager. Andreas is even worse than I am, right? And, well, we're building a company, right? We're building a firm. We want it to be bigger than ourselves. It, it can't be David and Andreas forever. It needs to be UVC, right? And that's so hard, right? And we're talking about the fact that, well, that's the funny thing about venture, right? You know, so many people with this profile and, and we want to build firms. We want to, you know, drive change. We want to do something that is meaningful, we're typically not the best guys and girls to, to set up those, those firms. I'd love to hear a comment to that. Well, I think that what will happen is that there's a point. You guys are the owners and the stewards of the UBC, right? You guys have a love for it as much as you would for a child. You know, it's a form of creation, right? And so at some point, you'll realize that the identity of not being good managers is not nearly as valuable to you as the need to become a good manager. And you will make that trade-off. You'll make that trade-off an investment. You'll be like, shit, it's kind of funny to say I'm not a very good manager because it means I'm good at other things. But at some point you'll realize that as you start bringing in more people that, man, I really should become better at being a good manager. And then you'll dedicate time to that. And most likely what will happen is that one of you will have to make that decision while the other one probably specializes in something else, which is very usual and very common. And that whoever that one of you would be, That's David. <laughs> you will go into a journey of kicking yourself for a lot of the mistakes that you made, which have become calcified cultural elements that you created during this period when you're probably less focused on it. And then you'll spend the next three years trying to undo all that damage and then hopefully have something stable come out the other end. Before we move into the quick fire round, I want to ask you one question, which is to our listeners, you have a podcast as well with more than 400 episodes, if I remember correctly. That's right. If our listeners are to betray us and listen to another podcast, let it be yours. Which episode should they tune into? Actually, one of the ones that I most recall is one that I did with Amy Nayakis, and she was a very introspective episode. We talked about one of her favorite books and the implications of it. And I think I really enjoyed that one. That's very, one of the actually earlier ones. Of course, anybody who's like a celebrity fan, I had uh, Joe Gordon-Levitt on. That was fun. At the end of the episode, there is a he discloses where the Batcave was. 
So that's always fun. Um, <laughs> that's worth listening to. That's worth listening yeah, to. Yeah. So, but you know, there's tons of great people and I've really had some enjoyable chats. Some of my most enjoyable ones have been ones with our founders where we explore deep dives into like why they started their companies. But you know, that's a function of what your sectoral interest is. I was about to uh, say, could you just tease a bit the overall topic of the podcast and what is it that you explore? Is it more inspirational stories? Is it more life stories? Or is it okay, I'm also going to get some business knowledge out of this. Part of the challenge of having a podcast for like four or five years, I forget how long it's been going on now, is that it, you can almost look at the themes that I explored on a yearly basis. So it depends which vintage of podcast you want. Right? <laughs> it's like a bit wine then. Yes, exactly. So like last year and a half, I've been going down this path of chatting more with our founders because I think when we first started in venture in Europe, a lot of the ideas were peripheral to core industries. They kind of skirted around the industries. And I think a perfect metaphor of this is if you look at what uh, TransferWise was when it started, which was moving money from left to right within the network. And you look at some of the startups that are now powering the fintech world, like Solaris Bank and, and Griffin, you know, you went from the periphery of the fintech to the core banking system. And so similarly, some of the podcasts that I can do now are very much in the core of an industry and changing that industry. So I think that that's an interesting theme that's happened in the last year. On that note, let's Get to the quick fire round. Quick fire round, a couple of quick answer questions, 30 to 60 seconds each. Carlos, are you ready? Do it. First one, what areas, sectors, or technologies excite you the most that people around you don't really feel that excited about? Right. So I decided I'm going to rule out AI from this chat because it would be cliche. <laughs> I still love AI, but I'm going to rule out just because otherwise it violates the spirit of the question. So I would say food tech and agritech because even though they're kind of a subset of climate, we all know that we have the technology today to solve world hunger. Second question, what are your top tips for emerging VCs across Europe who are now fundraising? So if you've been listening to this entire podcast, you will know that this answer won't surprise you. Don't compromise on what you think makes you unique. LPs might be tempted to shape you to what they know, but don't let that be the case. Third and final question, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you've been in venture? It's not how smart you are, it's the relationships you build over the years. Uh, that's beautiful. It's not how smart you are, but it's how smart your friends are. <laughs> yeah. Well, that bodes well for me, at least. Thanks a million, Carlos, for joining us. It was awesome having you on. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of The European VC, the go-to podcast for everything European VC. If you love the show, share it with your friends and join our newsletter at eu.vc. 